go, do you remember the moment? Do you remember your moment when this became your life's calling? And I said, healthcare is too hard today not to have a calling. It isn't a job any longer. It's too hard. You have to have that purpose deep in your belly, that fire that keeps you going. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Air Force Colonel Don Taylor to War Docs. Don earned a Master of Healthcare Administration from Penn State University and served as an Air Force Medical Service Corps officer, holding multiple critical roles in advancing the Air Force medical mission both downrange and in caring for beneficiaries at home stations. You can learn more about his bio at wardoxpodcast.com. In this episode, Colonel Taylor describes what it was like to be the only non-physician commander at the Air Force Hospital at Balad Air Base in Iraq. He describes the role of Medical Service Corps officers and how they support the military medicine mission. He provides some important tips on dealing with communication flow when dealing with high-profile patients, and he also talks about some resources that are available for healthcare professionals to further develop executive leadership skills. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Air Force Colonel Donald Taylor to Wardox. Don, thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Colonel Taylor, what was your pathway to joining military medicine, and why did you choose the Air Force? It, it, it was kind of an interesting story. When you, when you raised a little country kid in West Texas, or born in West Texas, and grew up in the suburbs of Dallas, I never thought about the military. My parents couldn't afford college, so I was offered a scholarship in architecture from the Air Force. And I went, wow, what a great opportunity. What am I going to have to do? And they go, well, you're going to have to run a mile and a half and cut your hair. I said, well, I think I can do that. So I joined the Air Force through ROTC, finished my degree. And I just happened that my first assignment was the Aerospace Medical Research Lab at Wright-Patterson as their on-site engineer. So I was very fortunate to be a young kid at 22, you know, brand new butter bar, responsible for some of the most complex research buildings in military medicine at the time. I was intrigued by that and became fascinated with medicine through the research eyes. I served on the Human Use Review Committee. I actually served as a human subject on the centrifuge for three years. Got an idea of what G's were like and how to design ejection seats and do some unique training and human dynamics and impact sleds. And also, I was just fascinated by medicine then. And I lost a little of my interest in just basic architecture other than for buildings. Now, did you realize that after you had started your Air Force career or when you were in undergrad, did you start saying, hey, medicine, medical service corps seems like something I might be interested in? It was after I started my career in the Air Force. It took a year or so before medicine sort of hooked me. Today, when I teach, and I, I teach in a number of venues, and I teach pre-med undergrad too, and I say medicine's not a job, medicine's a calling. From there, I moved into the facilities part of the Air Force Surgeon General's office, worked overseas internationally, Korea and Hawaii and Japan. And then I became fascinated with the way that buildings were put together. But through those interviews, many of our listeners may not know, but the Medical Service Corps makes up over 40% of military medicine. So how would you describe the Medical Service Corps to people who 
maybe aren't familiar with what that means. Well, the first thing you better have a grasp on is you're comfortable serving others because that's your job is to support those who serve those who serve others. And if you want to be a doc, be a doc. If you want to be a nurse, be a nurse. If you want to support those, then be an NSC. And I learned that many times. Now, the Air Force and Army and other services have a different definition of MSC. In the Air Force, it's pure clinical healthcare administration. In the Army, it's it's mixed with a bunch of, of other clinical services and support as well as it is with the Navy. Unfortunately, when I moved over, I was an engineer, so I wasn't an MSC first. I moved from the line of the Air Force into the Bioenvironmental Services Corps because that's where the architects sat. There were only 12 of us at the time. And I was a BSc, then I transitioned to the Medical Service Corps after I got my master's in healthcare administration. Let's talk about that. So you earned a master's degree in healthcare administration, and you said in the Air Force that Medical Service Corps is hospital administrators. Tell us about that degree, and then tell us about how the Air Force uses healthcare administrators and executives within military medicine. Well, I was on a weird track because I was an engineer, and I was looking to understand a little bit more about how buildings were designed, not just the design of the building, but what was the epidemiology behind the community of need? How would I know what we put in the building based upon community needs, trends, benefit design and structure of a particular community? Or did we need a hospital? What kind of hospital? What kind of services? So there was only one program in the country, and that was Penn State that had a Master of Science in Health Planning. So I became a Nittany Lion. And while there, they transitioned to an MHA program. So I was fortunate enough to graduate as an engineer with an MHA. Did the Air Force goes, I don't know what to do with you. You're an administrative cap guy. I also did some simulation and modeling. And this was back before even PCs and where we modeled emergency room optimization and did some pretty cool mathematical things. But I learned from there that administration and healthcare was all about a sense of service and support for the infrastructure or putting together the team. The Air Force uses us in unique ways, mostly in management in five in functional areas through logistics and IT and finance and health plans and or logistics and facilities. There's many subsets inside the Air Force that you can specialize in. I particularly became notched in the health plans designed through TRICARE, and I did patient administration as well. And then I started within the Air Force, the group practice management program within the Air Force and a training platform for that. So when someone goes to medical school, they, they pick a specialty. And so you had alluded to the fact that there are different tracks within Medical Service Corps that someone can go down. Take us through the different big picture ones and then the one that you chose and just tell us what that job entails. Well, you sort of follow whatever opportunity you had. I was locked into facilities for almost 10 years and was and I, I pretty well knew the, the facilities track and infrastructure and utilities and logistics and design and layout and function. I was very comfortable with that. And very comfortable with the way it worked, both from the patient's point of view as well from the clinical point of view. But I really hadn't done typical or traditional finance. I had never been a CFO. I'd never done logistics. I had not done information systems or IT. But my first assignment, I was a major before, for the first time before I ever worked in a med center. And I was fortunate that my first job was as the administrator for the chief of the medical staff. So my first committee meeting ever in a hospital was the executive committee of the medical staff with docs. It was the way I learned, I learned the interworkings of a health system through the eyes of physicians. And it was my first exposure. I loved it. It was unique. I saw sort of my peer MSCs as 
the guys on the other side of the table trying to take my money, the guys trying to deny me resources and when I was the advocate and champion for the docs. I mean, it's just the way you're kind of exposed. Mine was unique in that regard. And I had this chance to do this just because of this strange background I had. As the administrator for the SGH, as I called it back then, of chief of the medical staff, I was doing everything. I was doing their business plans, their project management. I was doing initiatives for them, equipment acquisition, advocating for equipment, advocating for, for the formulary development, advocating for labs and growth of labs, advocating for different ORs. So I was really in helping change policy too. So I was really helping them expand their opportunities to kind of practice at the top of their license. And in that was my role, was to become their champion speaking the language of the administrative side of the world. I loved that opportunity. What were your key lessons learned as you stepped into that hospital executive committee as your first real job in a hospital? And, and they're looking at you as the, the outsider administrator. What is the big challenge and what do you have to learn to gain trust? And how do you succeed in that job? Well, I would tell you the first thing I learned is what a shame that my peers have never worked in this space. That was the first thing I learned. And it was the basis for me developing the group practice manager role in the future. I said, every medical service corps officer must have had a time working in the clinics with the docs firsthand. They must have. You must have that experience to be effective, especially if you're going to be either the administrator or going to seek become the CEO or the commander of one of their facilities. It pays dividends. And I, I still, to this day in the private sector, so many CEOs out there have never kind of immersed themselves in a clinical point of view in early career. And it's a, it's a deficit for them later on as they try to build those relationships. It's helped me build the dialogue. And so today, I, like I said, my, my narrative is through doc size, my friends are the docs, and I just work better in that space, understanding not only what they do, but what their passions are, but I also know where their weak spots are. Remember when the rest of us were out there having friends and developing social skills, the docs are in med school. So they have a gap in some of their development skills. And then they go right out of med school into a deep immersion into their clinical specialties. They're completely ignorant, so to speak, of all of these basic business principles they need to advance either their practice or their models or their projects. And I'd love helping them do that today. So you were in Bowling Air Force Base in Washington, D.C. in the 9-11 time period. And at that time, you served as the primary advisor and consultant to the Surgeon General. Tell us about the pre-9-11 timeframe and then the post-9-11 era and the major transitions that you were doing as a hospital executive with the TRICARE program as it was transitioning and we were being attacked. Wow. That was an interesting time. You heard General Carkin talk about his experience at the Pentagon on 9-11. So he was my boss at the time and I was a full colonel and it just so happened my office faced National Airport in the Potomac River and I saw the plane hit the Pentagon. I watched the plane go into the Pentagon and it, it was just such a, an instant moment in life and it affected me. I did, little did we know, my daughter deployed to Afghanistan four times. My youngest daughter enlisted two weeks after 9-11. Just, it just changed my life. It changed my family forever. And I, I didn't know that at the time, but it affected me very deeply. And the visual still sticks with me today. Now, as far as military medicine at the time, we were struggling in a number of ways. We had an entity called TRICARE Management Activity at the time that was not friendly with the services, I can assure you of that. We, had, we butted our heads 
And we had our moments where we were trying to establish our own, frankly, authority and existence and way. And then we were we had competing cultures between the three services. And strangely enough, we worked well together. We just didn't work well with TMA because at the time there was a battle between the tracker management contracts who were written not necessarily to, I think, bring value to us or to the patients. They just weren't incentivized for access. They weren't incentivized for greater value to what we needed to support the primary mission. They also weren't standardized. That drove me crazy. We At that time, we had probably had 150 facilities. We probably had three to 4,000 different health plans at the time because every MTF could execute differently. And the TRICARE contractor was held to different standards than us, such as access standards and enrollment standards. And we didn't have a, what a, a friendly connection with it. So it was a challenge. My biggest challenge, though, at that time was General Carlton asked me to fix the over-65 care. He, we didn't have access to care for those over 65. Once you were 65, the assumption from Congress in 1965 when Champos was written was that you'll have access to MTFs. Well, TRICARE changed that. We started crowding them out. There was more efficiency. There was more focus on TRICARE becoming an insurance plan rather than an augmentation to our primary network of healthcare. So he said, Don, we need to fix it. And he goes, and then here's how we're going to fix it. And I went, well, take away that. Give me two weeks to figure this out, and then I'll come back. So I did. I brought a group of experts in, put together a plan. And then I went back to him and I said, okay, boss, I think we have a solution. He goes, good. He goes, what, so we're going to do what I said? And I said, no, we're not going to do what you said, because if we do, you'll go to jail. What we really need to do is create this sculpted plan where we, get a, we had nine different tests going on for over 65s around the country. They called them pilots, but they weren't measuring anything, and there was no escape strategy. There was no off-ramp for any of them. I said, let's put together an integrated plan that provides equal benefits. And then it's augmented by that, and let's work with Medicare to create it. So after about three months, I put that together, presented it to him, and literally, I will tell you, I presented it to him Monday morning, Tuesday morning, I was briefing the chief of staff of the Air Force, Tuesday afternoon's briefing secretary of the Air Force, and Wednesday morning was Admiral Pilling chairman of the DMOC at the time. And I literally had never even briefed my immediate boss. This, this had taken a life of its own. And the model was sound. Next thing I knew, I was briefing the Senate and Armed Services Committees and the House Armed Services Committee's members. And the last one was the Senate when they took my book from me and said, thank you, solved the problem. You'll never get credit for this, but we appreciate it. And a month later, it was introduced as TRICARE for Life by Senator Warner. It was just amazing how it works. One of the things that a healthcare administrator in the civilian sector probably doesn't have to deal with when they're looking at access to care is that providers are getting called to go to faraway places to fight in wars. How did yes. you find and address that challenge to access to care when doctors and nurses and medics were getting called out of all the military treatment facilities across the nation? I actually addressed that directly in the follow-on assignment to this one when I went to Luke as the commander out in Phoenix, Arizona. That was my first priority because we were just beginning to support rotations in the combat zone. It was a community hospital of about 750 people. We had about 45 beds, and I was the first non-physician to command there as well. So I was a little apprehensive. I had done my homework for Six months prior, they had some, let me just say, some documented problems with their joint commission. They had some clinical issues, particularly in surgery there. So I knew I was walking into some challenges. So the first 
knowing what I know about docs, my my second night there, I held a meeting for all the physicians at 530 and ordered pizza. And it was just they and I. And I said, okay, I'm here. Here's a few things I want to chat about. Number one, you're my board of directors. I work for you. And I but I need us to work together. I want to design a program where you can deploy without injuring or harming patients and that you can return safely and you can satisfy that we can keep the flow going throughout the entire time. But I want to honor our patients' need. I said, I believe every appointment is a contract with the patient. So therefore, no meetings will ever occur during clinic hours. Every meeting that you're required to attend will happen either before work, during lunch, or after hours. Just the way it's going to be because we honor all the, the clinics are a priority. Next is if you book an appointment, it's booked. It can't be canceled. So plan carefully your vacations and you work as teams. You can't cross the teams. You want to see your patients. They want to see you. So we prioritize that as a need. And then I augmented them with nurse practitioners and PAs in each team. And then I created a low acuity clinic across the hall where people could walk in all day. We dropped our annual, our utilization of eight visits a year down to two. And I ended up going from 100 visits in my ER to 30 and had to close it down. So it was incredibly successful. Our satisfaction was all great. One of the things that struck me when I was doing my background history on you, homework, I guess you could say, is that while you were the commander at Luke Air Force Base, you developed what we still now use as the primary care medical home. Mm -hmm. I was just interested to see that you had helped develop that. Tell us about the primary care medical home. Well, it was the beginning. What it was, was this particular model. And, and I would tell you what where it went further is that we began to track then metrics that were important to the physicians themselves, but also to the patients. We had our HEDIS measures and our wellness measures, and then I had my combat readiness measures I had to report to the wing. But we started measuring things that not necessarily the Surgeon General wanted, things that my patients wanted and things the docs wanted. They wanted continuity with their patient. And that went from 60 to over 95% in a period of six months. It was just incredible how important it was that you could see your doc. The other is, if a patient calls, they're seen the same day. And they were, what? I go, yep, they're seen the same day. Because if you're available, they will trust that they have access. And the docs goes, well, that means our, te-. I said, yep, your templates are open. Well, once it matured, the docs are going home at 3.30 every day. And they were in pamphlets 1,700 to 1, and people, they were just not seeking care. There'd be a seasonal variation here and there. The other part is if they went to the ER and it wasn't an emergent need, it was either because they couldn't get an appointment or they weren't educated. So the chief of the medical staff, he would then back brief me. And after a while, that stopped because the doc responsible, their primary care manager had to address that. These things all just changed. And then we started doing what the docs wanted even more was we wanted to match them with things they wanted to do. If they had interest in geriatrics, we matched the teams. If they had interest in pediatrics, we would match the teams. We began to balance acuity across those teams as well. So they became incredibly satisfied. I had an OBGYN clinic that was leased in space external. We had four OBGYNs. They were delivering more babies than anybody in DOD, but it was never counted as workload because it was outside the building. I never could get credit for that in the current and that model at the time because it wasn't in the MTF. So you said that the, the physicians had pretty good buy-in because obviously you're listening to their concerns. How about those nurse practitioners and PAs? How did, how did they feel they fed into the medical home? 
Well, they loved it. Now, let me, let me start with the docs. The docs bought in because I told them in that first night that if we try this model, if any one of you disagree with this, come to me personally and we'll stop it for everyone. You have the ultimate power to stop this. All of you have the authority individually to stop it. Not one did. The nurse practitioners, the PAs love it because we pushed them to the top of their license. We provided full complex cases for them. They were fully empowered to do it. And they had their own panels and they were matched closely within the team because we dedicated nurses, technicians, and administrative staff at the time within each of these teams. And every Monday, by the way, we had to flash up a chart and I wanted to see names on the chart who was supporting what team every day of the week. And I would audit that personally because I didn't trust that you were just going to have Bobby Joe there. No, I wanted to know Bobby Joe was going to be there Thursday at noon. We just had to have full accountability and full transparency to supporting each other. Let's shift a little bit now to your combat experience. And so you were the commander of the Air Force Theater Hospital in, at Blot Air Base in Iraq. Tell us about that assignment. Wow, that was a gift. It was, it was the best job you could have in military medicine in my, in my mind. I was at Wilford Hall at the time as the new vice commander there. And we were supporting the clinical rotations in Balad. There had been some, some challenges. We were also supporting part of Bagram as well. So we had 350 or so staff at, at, out of Wilford Hall in Balad at any one time. We had had the typical rotations. And so it came upon we needed an experienced commander to go. And I raised my hand and they go, well, you're not a surgeon. And I go, okay. I said, I can lead. And so sure enough, the line approved it and I went as, as commander there. Now, did I feel pressure? Yeah, absolutely I did because I knew I was going to have to do this incredibly well being a non-physician, particularly not a surgeon, going into that rotation. I took it a little different approach. I started working the team about eight weeks before we departed. We started meeting together. We would go through specific issues of clinical needs, clinical demand, trends, types of injuries. We go through that as a group in the auditorium. We go through safety and security risks. The, my, my BMET team, my maintenance guys, research all the equipment, and I sent them off to specific training so they were ready for the, the unique models that we had there, particularly imaging, because they already knew there was, a, there was a challenge with the volume and demand of imaging at the combat site. I also, though, was very focused on individual health and well-being. I knew that some of the medics were coming back a little bit tired, and some of the multiple exposures, not everybody's able to see the trauma and deal with the trauma every day and come back refreshed. So I started focusing on emotional, uh, spiritual, financial, or physical well-being for all of us. And I started teaching that before we left. But I gave everybody a chance to, to opt out or to quit before we left. I said, there's no training there. You're ready to go or you're not going. So we arrived in January of 2006 and the team was, was, was quite prepared. So it was but it arrived with a different kind of approach. I looked at it and knew that our mission was throughput. That's a little bit different than some previous put combat hospital models. Ours was moving people out. We had developed and refined the, the CCAT missions. Critical care air transport team. C-17s were rolling in and out every day. So my measure of success was in the ICU at 3.30, at 3 in the morning. And we could relocate post-op critical patients just hours after surgery safely using the airlift that would fly in supplies and we'd fly out as a flying hospital. 
And we did that every evening, usually about 2 a.m. Back to launch stool is the primary landing. Some missions went all the way back to the States, but primarily launch stool. One of the things, especially at that time when there was a high op tempo, there were some very tough clinical cases, especially with movement. Are they stable enough? Where do we go? We've got host nation casualties. We've got detainee casualties. How did you really deal with those complex clinical issues as a non-clinician commander who had to make the decisions of, do we fly this patient or move them? Right. Well, I would tell you the first thing I would advise any administrative personnel, never, ever do clinical. Never do clinical. My traumas are made all the decisions clinically. I was fortunate to have my deputy was a plastic surgeon, well accomplished combat plastic surgeon. I deliberately made my kind of oversight for the clinical role, not the trauma guy, a critical care specialist, pulmonologist, so that I had a balance of of what I call internal medicine or critical skills with the surgical skills. And we had a nice balance of input from each about when a patient can move. The surgeons had a, usually a different point of view about the stability of a patient versus the critical care specialist. And they were looking at it, particularly those on that would support a CCAT mission, for instance. And so I allowed them to make those decisions at all times. And if it became much more difficult than that, I would engage myself, but I, I stayed out of their way. I would do what I was supposed to do, which was keep all the noise away from them. They, no one ever got in the way of that. Can you give us an example of when there was a conflict between those two clinical sides that you had to come in and, and what did you do to resolve that? Well, I had one where one night we had a surgeon who was, who was going to, he, he, we were low on blood. We were just low on blood. You could imagine we were doing about three cranies a day. And you could imagine the volume of blood that requires, 120 units each, something like that. And we were just low on blood supplies. And we were dependent then upon our sister services to kind of keep the supply coming to us because we were kind of at the end of that pipeline. And he said, we're just low on blood, so we're going to shut down all head cases for those other than U.S. I said, oops, I got to get involved in this. So I visited him about 1.30 in the morning and we had a chat. And I said, explain to me what's going on. And he did. And I said, I understand clinically why you have to do this, but I said, what could solve it? And he goes, blood. I go, now understand how this could be perceived on the headlines of the Washington Post, that we triaged on nationality. He goes, oops. And I said, yeah. I said, I don't want my name attached to that. Do you? And he said, no. I said, I'll take what? Give me a couple hours. I'll get you blood. So I called in some favors to the Navy, <laughs> and we routed a plane in with new blood from Germany, and we had it there in a very short time. The point was, those, those decisions or things like that can become, it's slippery slope when you, you're so in the bubble and you're so immersed in. He was absolutely right in what he was about to do, but it could have been devastating to us in a national or an international scene if that was captured or published out of context. And it would have been. This was just after I have a grave. It would have been. I was very sensitive to images and statements and cameras at that time. So... I learned a few lessons there, but I also learned that I had to speak the language. And so I, I immersed myself. I was not hidden. I wasn't the typical MSC. I was in all the ORs. I was in the ER. I wasn't interfering, but I was visually observing. I was there to help. I had some docs who, young docs who were there. This was their first assignment. They were struggling. They were, they were afraid. So I'd scrub in and go to their ORs and talk to them. Just talk, ask questions. 
So just just curious, what do you think as an MSC, you, you said you went in the OR and scrubbed in, what was the most interesting surgical subspecialty or specialty that oh. you worked with? Oh, urology, neuro, of course. It's got to be urology. Neuro. He was incredible. Now, I would tell you, oh, are you? <laughs> He's a urologist. Is that you? Yep. I'll tell you what I couldn't do is I couldn't do ophthalmology. But here's an ironic thing. This was a guy who almost passed out when my girls were born. I mean, literally, I can't stand the sight of blood. The ORs didn't bother me in blood. And when I returned back to Wilford Hall afterwards, and I would go down after a car wreck and, and at the level one trauma center down, I would get sick again. I'd get nauseous. There was something about the context of blood that I felt immune from that. But I did my part. I scrubbed in. I would help unzip body bags with the ED in the back. I did my part because I didn't want them thinking he's just a bean counter or a shoe clerk, as the pilots like to say. No, I'm part of the team. I'm here and I'm, I'm part of you. But my job is to allow you to do your job and to keep all the noise out away from you. That was really my job was to shelter them from all the, the crap that happens in the periphery. So one of the things that the docs and nurses and clinical professionals are, are worried about is obtaining and maintaining clinical competency, and especially when they're preparing for deployments. What are the critical competencies to master for healthcare administrators in a war zone, and what are you preparing for? In the healthcare administration side, it's, it's a tragedy that we do not practice in our peacetime world the way we practice in the combat zone. And I would also take that to jointness. I had absolutely no problem at the pointy end of the spear dealing with my sister services right there in the, right there in the line. I had 45 army medics working with me at the time. I had Navy and Marines working. We had no problem. I had the problem when I get back to Washington. The closer we get to Washington, the further apart it is. Or even San Antonio with the brat. Or even San Antonio. And I could talk forever about that battle too. And I would tell you for a while, I worked at the, in this, after I retired, I worked at Lovell in North Chicago with the Navy in the joint VA facility. It's incredible that they're still an anomaly and can't work together. They have a complete dual governance because the Navy didn't trust the VA, the VA didn't trust the Navy. My point is we had to do things differently in the combat zone, partly because of archaic equipment or we had archaic policies that were just different than the combat zone. We don't need to do that any longer. IT should be very similar to IT there. Finance is non-existent. Logistics and supply chain, incredibly important. But we had to do too many, what I call, off-the-books or heroic interventions to make things work. Patient administration, we were pushing papers over there. We didn't do that here. We had kids who were never trained to do what we expected them to do in the combat zone. And I really wasn't expecting my patient admin kids to have to do all the the tagging and collection of artifacts off the bodies. They weren't trained for that either. We had some things we could do better. We can do much better than we have in training for that. Now, I would tell you before I left, I went to Brooks Air Force Base where we trained for a week in a combat scenario and we did live animal models there. And I'm telling you, that's as close to the real thing as I've ever seen. It was intense. It was loud. It was disruptive. But it was on the mark. It was as close to a real, what I call mass casualty event, as, as I experienced over there. It's as close in training, thing, I think, as you could get. So we heard that while you were the commander, that you had a high-profile patient at your facility. Tell us about your overall approach with the media and the information flow and dissemination. Well, one Sunday afternoon, I had just returned from chapel, and part of my renewal was physical and spiritual. Those were the things I committed to, and I was very transparent about that with everybody because I'd go around asking people, 
what they were doing for their own renewal while we were there. Because it would sort of get their mind off of the visual trauma and just being tired constantly. I remember there was a little fear still too, because we were getting mortared about three times a day still. And there were some people anxious about that. But about one o'clock in the afternoon, I got a call and said, boss, you need, need to come in. We're going to, we got somebody arriving. You need to, you need to be here for her. So I, I arrived. And at that time, Bob Woodruff of the ABC, he was the co-chair of ABC Evening News. And his cameraman had both just been injured about halfway between our site, between Blod and, and Baghdad. And they were bringing him in uh, in the emergency room and he was going to need surgery. So the first thing I did was, okay, let's, let's lock the facility down. I don't want anybody coming in that doesn't belong here. Second, where's the rest of his crew? And they would set him up in a tent and where's the satellite link? So that's done. And I said, and by the way, is the president of ABC News and family on the line? And they said, yes, they got him on the line over here. Good. I said, good. So the comm links are good. And then I go back to my office and here's an NBC Pentagon correspondent standing in my office. And he goes, can I ask you a few questions? I said, no, you can't. No, you can't. You can go to my conference room down the way here in another tent and I'll come back and give you a brief in a while. But I'm not going to talk to you right now. I then confiscated all cameras. I wouldn't allow any pictures to be taken of him while he was injured. So I, and I told anyone that was caught taking the picture, pretty harsh outcome, but I said, not going to do it. You're not, no pictures of him. He deserves privacy and let's just take care of him. Let's take care of the medicine. So we had Hans, it was Hans Bakken and Schlifka were the two surgeons at the time. Great guys. I mean, just great guys. And they were the two taking care of him. And we also had a Marine spinal injury from a humpy rollover at the same time. And he was in a different OR and they were going back and forth between the two treating him and treating this Marine. Went through surgery just fine. And then afterwards, he, I had the surgeons get on the phone and talk to his wife only. And they gave him the prognosis and said things went well. And then they back briefed the president of ABC News only after the wife's permission. I was very clear about how we would manage the communication. The NBC News guys, was, by the way, was still sitting in my conference room. So I went down and gave him my mission brief. And he goes, now, can I talk? I said, you will talk to nobody here. You won't talk to anybody that's seen him. You won't talk to anybody that's been around him. I'll talk to you about the mission all day long, but th that's what it's going to be. And Armed Forces News, I actually was there and I had them cut the cameras off and, and, and depart. So he, he, succeed, he succeeded well. He got a great surgery. We moved him that evening and he went to lunch till that night. And of course, he's a great survival story now and is an advocate for brain trauma, brain injury and military medicine. He's just, it was just great. But he never knew really he was there, which is kind of an interesting side story. Now, what that taught me was, the media can be pretty difficult at times. So I then had a model with the team. We got a lot of exposure after this because I didn't realize the Pentagon had released this as an invite to visit us based upon that event. So I started seeing all these requests come in. I said, okay, these are my rules. They're all going to come in. I only want one large media entity at a time. They have to have a two-hour mission brief with me. And through that mission brief, I said, here's what we are. There's a whole spectrum between point of injury and, by the way, a lifetime of recovery. I'm 20 hours in the middle of this. Pretty important 20 hours, but that, that's all we are. But I don't want you to have, come in with a story. I want you to get the story out of your head because you're going to find one here that's better than you created. And I said, so you can, after this mission brief, you can go talk to anybody you want. You can ask any question you want. Just don't get in the way. I said, but you can't leave until tomorrow morning. You have to stay with us 24 hours. And they go, what? I go, 
you must stay 24 hours. We're at our best at night. That movement, that patient movement we did was the richness of our mission. And I said, that you have to see. Well, my secondary agenda was they bonded with the team over that time. They created friends. I had 15, 20 of these national media covered, not one negative story the entire time. It was praising. A matter of fact, it was almost too comfortable. National Public Radio told the story the surgeons had created a fictitious doctor and had a room assigned so they could hang out. It's a flop house over in housing. And they named the fictitious doc. And NPR shared it on National Public Radio. And I heard it one morning. So I go into openers and I asked Chief of Surgery, I said, hey, I want to meet with Dr. So-and-so. They all kind of look shocked. And he goes, can I meet with you afterwards? <laughs> so we had a good chat about that. But that became a way to manage the media positively. And we never, ever had a matter. Matter of fact, San Antonio team did a one-hour special. He earned an Emmy from it. 60 Minutes spent two weeks with us. So, so you mentioned a little bit how, how smoothly, maybe it's necessity, that the services work together downrange. And we talked a little bit about the bracket San Antonio. And fast forward a little bit, we've got the National Defense Authorization Act that basically says you have to work together in this defense health agency concept. Tell us your thoughts about how best can the services, medical departments, work together to create seamless care for beneficiaries, but also support the warfighter? Wow, that's a big question. BRAC was like the shotgun wedding. And, and the BRAC in San Antonio was the primary reason I retired. I was furious over that forced integration without a conscious effort at outcomes and or clinical need necessity at the time. It, it just didn't feel right. Matter of fact, most of those what I call forced integrations didn't feel right in the markets because we hadn't done the courtship we needed to understand each other's culture other than in the combat zone, which I said, by the way, we did quite well there. But home, we don't do that well. We have turf wars, we have territories, we have dominance, we have different command styles, we have different structures. We even have different reporting chains. For goodness sake, I, I worked for the line. I didn't work for the, the surgeon. He was just an advisor to me. But we hadn't solved those problems before they forced it. We still we didn't even have an electronic medical record that worked well between, the, between us. So we had some challenges in that space. And I thought we could have done that a little more responsibly, let me just say. It, it felt to me like it was a political decision that probably hadn't been vetted well at the operational level. That's my first thought. The second is, these are necessary in order for us to create that clinical currency we talked about that's necessary to support the wartime mission. Well, through once we achieve clinical currency, then the following support infrastructure also obtains currency. That's where you get the administrative currency. That's where you get the respiratory therapist and the clinical care nurses and the OR techs and the ER. That's where you get everything supporting the team at the intensity level we need to support a combat mission. And, but that you have to have that opportunity. And it's best done, by the way, inside an MTF. So the total team is there. Not only that, it's also best done when you optimize the investment in that market. I understand what we do with the ER sites and the trauma sites with Baltimore and with St. Louis and Cincinnati. I help create one in, in Phoenix. I understand that, but that's, that's notional. And that's just in time. It's not really at the intensity level you need. I had people arrive to me that hadn't touched a head in three years. And they were supposed to do three a day. 
I mean, it was, it was, it was striking. Hey, people who hadn't been in the ICU in three years and they were going to run it. We have to do better to assure they have that experience needed because I kept thinking this could be my kid. This could be my kid in here. And I want to deliver it. We did very well, but we did it. We could have done better and we need to capture the lessons. So the DHA was created recently to try to force this integration. I've talked with a number of people in the DHA structure and I, I just think we've, we've, we outsourced our markets in the wrong markets. Remember, we spend a lot of money on TRICARE and on the privatized care in markets that we probably should be recapturing for currency. So in DOD medicine, if you want to be a responsible to the taxpayer for optimized expenses, we should be taking care of all possible eligibles in a market. Well, we have about 10 markets that have massive numbers of eligible beneficiaries. And I'm talking active duty families, retirees, and by the way, a select number of over 65s. We closed those. We closed a lot of those markets, Phoenix, Tampa. We shut down or we, we lowered the volumes and we lowered the amount of the platform there, reduced the platform. We still retained Walter Reed. We should. We retained Tidewater. We retained Washington State and we retained even, even Travis, I think at times, I'm not so sure the market in the catchment area is large enough at times. Keesler, absolutely not. But we, but Midwest facilities like Wright Patterson and I'm familiar with Air Force and with Wright Patterson and Scott and even some of the armies inland. It's hard to find those populations that support the level of currency we need for physicians. So we had a model that I had developed with way back when I was doing the health plan side is that the first thing you do is what keeps a surgeon current? Well, you need a large population, about 17,000 people to keep one general surgeon current. Well, we can't do that on a population of 30,000. And then you, by the way, you have to control their behavior. You have to have 100% of the referrals. Well, do we do that? Well, Luke, when I built the plan there, I had 43,000 eligibles. I had 12,000 enrolled downtown. And every referral from that 12,000 that was rolled downtown, I got right of her first refusal on every referral. And I had to turn it in one day. But I had 100% of them for my orthopedic surgeon, general surgeons to see. We don't do that any longer. We just let them stay in the market. Even when I created the TRICARE for Life plan, Medicare was willing to let us see over 65s and let them be in Medicare Advantage-like plans for primary care, and we would get 100% of the referrals. And TMA refused to do it. We need that. We need that to keep these platforms full. Brooke Army Medical Center today has a lot of ORs empty today. They have a lot of empty ORs. I know that. So does most of our facilities have empty ORs. The ICUs are low as well. So I haven't, I've never been in the command suite like the two of you. I've never led the hospital. So why is it so difficult to recapture those patients back into the healthcare system? Because I understand why they left, right? They left because we were surging patients in Iraq and Afghanistan and people were coming back. But now that the tempo has slowed down, so why is it so difficult to bring those patients back? So let's talk about who we're competing with. We're competing with the private sector who courts them. Even our patients, they court, even though we're the lowest and slowest payers other than Medicaid, but they still court our patients because they're compliant. Our patients are pretty good patients and, and they do want them. And I'll tell you, they want them to grow the platforms because on the other side of the universe in the private sector, it's it's fierce. 
It's fierce right now for competition. The hospitals are going broke. Their markets are drying up. It is a it is a massive, massive battle out there to stay alive in healthcare. And by the way, docs are quitting. Nurses are quitting. So part of the challenge we've always had is that we've we sort of in the system, and I'll say that's a we, we had sort of this arrogance that we could always toss our patients over the fence and somebody would catch them. That's not the case any longer. They do want them, but these health plans are really battling to stay in business and capture a market. And the experience that they provide is much different than DOD. We never did the what I call the soft touch with the courtesies at the front, the appointments immediately available. We just didn't do that well. And we had this inconsistency of providers. I'm telling you, it means a lot when you have the same face over years, particularly for primary care, and you trust your primary care provider. My surgeon, not so much. I don't see them that often, thank goodness. But we have a battle because we we haven't really looked at how we integrate inside our markets like the private sector has. And I dealt with that with UT Southwestern. I helped integrate with a large Texas Health Research. It's a large health system there. I helped them create an accountable care model and a Medicare Advantage plan before I do what I do today. We just have to redesign these markets. So when you were, when you were deployed, you got a chance to see a lot of reservists come through and, and do a great job in taking care of what they need to take care of. What are your thoughts on just completely changing the paradigm of how we support the military and maybe move to rely more on the reservists to take care of those combat missions and stay in the private sector for the big part of their career and maintain that currency? From the physician's point of view, it's perfect. From their employer's point of view, it's not. How do you cover that gap? Because they are optimized themselves. These systems have no fat. They have zero fat in that system. They are they are optimized to the margin. That's why they couldn't surge in COVID. That's why they didn't partner in COVID. So they are really at the margin in operating. And one surgeon or a critical care team leaves, it breaks them down. They they that's a massive financial loss for them. Well, how do we how does DOD replace that? And there was a time during the war that that was positive and that was their contribution. Patriotism only goes so far now. There's just not a will to contribute like that in the private industry. There's not. I'm just being frank. I've worked as a veteran in these organizations and it's uh, it's difficult now. It's a pretty robust business and they're trying to recover losses right now post COVID. So the leadership, the culture inside the private sector, it's a little ruthless at this moment. Uh, that's why you're seeing the the quiet quitters and you're seeing the burnout within docs. And I'm I'm doing some work right now with physicians in burnout in a in a couple of systems right now. So later, once you retired, you then made the transition to civilian healthcare and you started working at UT Southwestern in Dallas. Tell us about that transition and what you learned in your military medicine experience and then carried over into the civilian sector. Well, in route between the two, I've served in the VA for a couple of years. So in, in, I worked in North Chicago for a short time, but they, they also in their, I don't know, so they have a sense of humor in the VA because they sent me to Phoenix as the number two guy in Phoenix for a year. I lived out of a hotel room trying to fix Phoenix. It was brutal. It was really brutal. It was hard. I love the veterans, but the VA culture is hard. And a military guy coming to that culture wasn't as welcomed as I thought they would be. It was, it was very difficult. You can't disrupt there very well. Southwestern was a great experience because I did learn how to integrate. I learned a lot of the privates, some of the private activities and private sector activities to integrate themselves, clinical integration, 
accountable care organizations, Medicare Advantage plans and structure, population health. But, but I learned a lot of the things, how primary care networks are formed and how they integrate with those, how the, oh my gosh, the massive division between the subspecialties within the, an academic med center the size of UT Southwestern. Not, not dissimilar to that in San Antonio between Bamsey and Wilford Hall. I mean, we had 80 different departments when I was at Wilford Hall. But it was a great experience for me, even though the culture was very much like most academic medical centers, which is harsh and difficult. But the beauty of that, while I was there, I started teaching. I started teaching leadership there, and I still teach it there after almost four years. I teach a section there in leadership at UT Southwestern. And then I do some workshops in physician well-being with them as well. And then that opened my door to start at UT Dallas. So you teach leadership. So tell us the leadership advice that you give to your students that you think everyone would be able to benefit from. Well, first of all, so I teach, let me just say, I teach their directors up to VPs at UT Southwestern. I teach pre-med at UT Dallas undergrad, and then I'm director of the physician leadership program at UT Dallas as well, which is the MBA program for physicians, senior physicians. Have about 90 docs in the program today, and I have a two-year waiting list to get in. And it have about 500 alumni, and it's a superb program. The docs average age is about 47, so they're they're more senior physicians. And I, as I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, man, shoes could benefit from a program like this. Military docs need an MBA program like this to learn business principles and leadership principles and how to think. They need that. So I'm hoping someday I can maybe talk to Dr. Woodson about how we could partner setting our curriculum up and doing that. So the best leadership advice I give, first of all, to my undergrad, I tell them, understand your purpose. So I'm not a, I don't like tech in the classroom. So the kids come to class the first day and no phones, no laptops, no iPads, a pad of paper and a pen. That's it. That's all. Nothing on the, on the desktop. I said, you think you multitask, you don't. You're either present or you're not. So you're going to listen to me. And then the first day they have to handwrite a half page why I choose to serve others in healthcare. And I have hundreds of these stories. And you wouldn't believe what, what moment directs them into this path. There's a moment in their lives. And I just had a young girl last semester write a story where she, she was an immigrant from Vietnam and she found her dad passed out in a diabetic coma in the bathtub. And she said, I called 911. She was 11. She goes, I was told I was a hero because I saved his life. And she goes, that moment was when I decided my life is to serve others. And I, so I read some of these stories to my senior docs now in the program. And I go, do you remember the moment? Do you remember your moment when this became your life's calling? And I said, healthcare is too hard today not to have a calling. It isn't a job any longer. It's too hard. You have to have that that purpose deep in your belly, that fire that keeps you going no matter the obstacles, because the obstacles are there now, and you're going to see them every day. And so I love that. That that recharges me to talk to these kids and then to bring that lesson to the senior docs. So I'm building the program now for the docs. I'm looking at a certificate program. We have the MBA program. I'm now opening a course next year for them to serve on health system boards, a certificate program. I'll launch that next May for the senior docs to serve effectively on boards. And I mean, it's not it. You're not there as a clinician. You're there as a board director. Take your white coat off and you can stand toe-to-toe with everybody else. We're going to teach you how to hold a CEO accountable. So we're building that program now so we have a full spectrum of leadership for docs. 
So for those who don't or aren't interested or don't have time to do a certificate program or a master's, how important is having a coach or a mentor for leaders who are in healthcare, whether they're MSCs, clinicians? How important is that? It is incredibly important. And I don't think we do enough of it in the military. And we need to have deliberate programs, well-designed deliberate programs that not everyone can coach. You have to have the right heart to coach because you have to be patient. You have to be tolerant, but we need to coach. I coach docs now in this program constantly. (laughs) I'm coaching them on contract negotiations. I'm coaching them on leadership challenges. I'm coaching them on governance issues, just how to get their head out of them, get their head out of the way because they get pretty down. At times they get frustrated. They feel trapped. And so I coach them often in that. That's just part of the program we do. I think we need to be doing more of that for physicians now, but it needs to be someone you trust. And it needs to have, the coach needs to be someone who understands where you are and where you're headed and what you want to be. But that's a special relationship. And I've asked the docs in my program, I said, when you're an alumni, I'm going to expect you in about five years to coach others. I want you to. That's part of giving back. I think you need to do that as part of your leadership journey. And they starting, they're starting to agree with that because they feel that's a missing piece. That letter in life, they need to give back to a junior doc and, and follow them or advise them as to how to navigate a path. So I think it's incredibly important. I wish we had had more of those programs in DOD. I would love to see that through, through some sort of umbrella like issues or something created and controlled, not controlled, just created and supported and funded through that. Organized, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Based on your experiences, what do you think is the biggest challenge facing future combat medical support and care? It's this currency issue. I'm really afraid we're not going to be prepared for the next war. I, I that That scares me to death that my grandson now, who's preparing to trying to go to West Point, of all things. It scares me to death that he's not going to get the clinical care he deserves if he chooses to go forth, that the doc that lays the hands on him won't be trained or qualified or experienced enough to save him. I worry about that because I just don't see us at home in our peacetime setting doing enough to prepare for it. We're too lost in congressional pressures and efficiency. I mean, this 20,000-person cut could be devastating. I've looked at the list they're cutting. For goodness sake, why aren't you cutting people who don't employ? Those that we need for the front, keep them, and let's move them into markets where they can get experience and currency. I've always said we need to keep in uniform those we need in the combat zone. Everything else we can outsource. And I, I'm worried that some of those decisions are more political than they are purposeful. Just, just my take. So when the history books are written 50, 100 years from now, if you could put your legacy into those books, what would you want your legacy to be from military medicine? Hmm. Oh, that I just changed a life or two here and there, that I, I affected somebody in a positive way. I was blessed with a couple of great opportunities to do some pretty unique things for a shoe clerk, and my career went way beyond my expectations. So I, I, got, to do, I got to do really, really, really good things, and I'm still getting to do great things, and all of it is allowing me to affect the lives of so many others. So I think that that's important. And one of the little things I'll share this little tidbit with you, I told you I started my career as an architect. That means I also paint. So 
the barrier art that you have on your homepage with the two choppers leaving Balad, the barrier art with the Red Cross and the P-51, right? Yeah, I, I painted that. I painted that in May of 2006. So it's just one of those things I did to make some to make a few people smile as they walked into the entrance to the Blood Hospital in our original site. And the kids, the loggies that knew me moved it when they, when they moved the new hospital. It's a great painting and it's a, it's a great picture. I, I love when I found that. I can't remember who took it, but now that I know the background, that's even more special. I had, a, I had a dream one night with that and I was laying there and I heard a predator over top of us. And I went, oh my gosh, this said to me, this, this Tuskegee P-51 is flying cap for us, protecting us. So when you look close at the picture, you'll see it's flying co top cover for us. And in the deep down, you'll see the hospital set up with the two helicopters landing in the dust in the background of that picture. And it's flying protection. And then my little joke, tongue in cheek, is the, is the burn pit up at the top, smoldering in the distance. I, I painted it for a while listening to Glenn Miller music. I had a one hour every afternoon between one and two that I could paint. So I had a floppy hat and I'd listen to Glenn Miller music and, and people would walk by and, Hey, can I paint a part? I said, yeah, here's a brush. Go paint that one. You paint that one. And then they'd start telling me their life story. I wasn't Colonel Taylor. I was just a dude painting a mural with a floppy hat. And they would tell me everything then. I wished I'd done it earlier in the rotation. So that T-Wall art is pretty, is pretty amazing because there's actually websites that are dedicated to it. And so yes. when I, I just got back from Baghdad this past summer, and it used to be old Camp Salter. And so you mm -hmm. can go on to the web pages and see these beautiful murals that have oh. been over in the Middle East for 20 years. And they're, they're even now, even though they're extraordinarily faded, particularly when they're westwardly facing, yes. uh, you can see how beautiful some these murals are because Sometimes people do have a little bit of extra time on their hands. And that's the way that, as you mentioned, that's the way that they sort of get their refreshment from yeah. those stressful situations of combat. And so we'll have to find, I have to find that website, Doug, and we'll have to post it. Was it was great. I found this was like the nose art of World War II for me. It was just a way to kind of express a moment. And I wanted to pay homage to the Tuskegee Airmen and, and, and I had our team, people participated in all of that, but we, we put it together and it was just, it was fun to do. Which is fun to do. I appreciate you doing this. And I, I can't tell you how important it is to capture these stories. And there's so many. All of these unraveled into other things. Like, I didn't even share with you when I was at Luke. You sort of I go, what are you doing in leadership? Will you immerse yourself in the mission? So I flew every Friday in the backseat of F-16s. I've got about 60 flights in the backseat of F-16s. And I never got paid for it. I just wanted to understand what a flight doc was supposed to do. And I learned everything about G-lock and graying out and all the, all the stressors of flying in a fighter jet, I was pretty conversant in it, actually, almost to the anger of some of the aerospace, some of the flight docs that worked for me. But was your experience we enough don't do. that you did end up graying out or blacking out? No, I was a G monster. This I told you I drove the centrifuge. Oh, I could do 12. Right. I could do 12. I'm a little squatty buddy guy. I could do 12 Gs without a suit. See, I would think, though, that the pilots would love to have the, the colonel in the back seat and oh. try to get them sick and... They would do it. And then they'd give me the stick and I'd get them sick. Nice. Yeah, I loved that. I'd love to get them nauseous. And they go, I got the stick back. <laughs> and then I once flew with my boss, who was General Breedlove, who became the Supreme NATO commander. A few years ago, retired as the four-star for NATO. And he was a one-star at the time, but he was in the front seat and I was in the back. And the kid strapping us in goes, isn't there some 
policy against this. And we paid a lot to get you guys to where I you're know. at. Oh, but he was a great neighbor, great neighbor. He taught me good scotch cigars in golf. Well, we've been speaking with retired Air Force Colonel Donald Taylor on War Docs. Don, thanks again for sharing your stories and your insights with us. And thank you for your service to the nation. Thank you. Proud to do it. Would do it all over again if I had a chance. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team WarDocs on WarDocsPodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, WarDocs has you covered. Spread the word.